Welcome to the EDECMO podcast. My name is Joe Belezzo. In this episode of the podcast, Zach got together with three guys from the University of Utah and discussed their establishment of their EDECMO program. On this episode, you're going to hear Scott Youngquist, an emergency medicine physician and pre-hospital specialist. Joe Tona is an assistant professor of surgery and the associate director of their ECMO services. And Stephen McKellar, CT surgeon with a particular interest in mechanical circulatory support. But before we get there, a couple of announcements. First of all, Reanimate 1 sold out within a few days. Reanimate 2 is now sold out. And Reanimate 3 is now scheduled for March 2nd and 3rd. Thursday and Friday here in San Diego, California. Now I got to tell you, the facility that we hold this conference in is spectacular. The conference room and the downstairs simulation lab is second to none. We have simulations that are just absolutely cool and we're bringing some new stuff to reanimate three. You're not going to want to miss it. So go and check us out at reanimateconference.com, reanimateconference.com, and follow us on Twitter at EDECMO. But for now, on to the podcast. All right, EDECMO, this is Zach Shiner, and it is March 2016. We just finished with our first conference, Reanimate was out of this world. It was a success beyond um, my wildest imaginations. Obviously, I'm highly biased, but uh, I think everybody had an amazing time. It was Disneyland for resuscitation. We had all kinds of different simulators and just great times at night and hanging out. And, you know, we've got the second one is almost sold out. I think there's only one spot left for September, but we are going to be doing it probably biannually. Chris Nixon is coming back. He's flying back from Australia to do it again. I don't know what's what's wrong with him, but uh, he liked the first one so much that he's going to come back from the Alfred and probably bring a couple other people. I'm going to keep those names on wrap right now because I uh, don't want to spoil it quite yet, but the best, the greatest teachers in the world as far as ECMO are coming to this thing. And so hope to see you sometime out in San Diego to actually get to tangibly do ECMO on simulators and learn everything that we've accumulated through not only our own program, but through programs all across the world. So I've got a very special guest, a group of people here from Utah today. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Excellent. Excellent. Doing great. Thanks. So it's March. The Utah Utes are doing fantastic in the NCAAs, and uh, the NCAA tournament starts in a couple of days. How are they going to do? Final four, at least. I Definitely Elite Eight. I'd love to see the four again. It's been since I was in college since they've made it. Yeah. But today I've got Scott Youngquist, a friend of mine from residency out at Harbor UCLA, and we've got... Joe Tona, who we're going to make a little spoiler alert about telling about a collaborative that they're doing out in Utah, and actually we're going to be involved with as well. And then I've got a very special guest, Stephen McKellar. Stephen, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm one of the CT surgeons here at University of Utah. been here about four years and uh, do a big part of the heart transplant, lung transplant, circulatory support, both acute like this ECMO initiative and also durable LVAD and artificial heart. So kind of a natural extension of what I do during the business hours to add this on to evenings and weekends. 
All right, so you guys have already had your program up and running and have had saves already. Tell me a little bit about what your numbers, how many have you done, and what's going on? So our, our program's been up and running, um, I, I guess coming on one year now. Joe Tona, Assistant Professor of Surgery, Assistant Director of ECMO Services. Um, and uh, I think we've had kind of in the mid-teens as far as uh, activations. Um, and, you know, our, our survival is uh, at least at the level of kind of what is seen in the ELSO registry or, or a little better. It, it kind of depends on uh, there's always programmatic creep with regard to what patients you intend to put on uh, with your program design and then who you actually put on. And depending on how you look at, at who we've put on, the survival is, uh, you know, at the level of expected or much, much better. Scott Youngquist, ER doc. It's probably about what we expected. We, when we rolled it out, we'd expect about one a month, and that's probably about where we are, given we started about a year ago, so not too bad. And so your outcomes are around 30% or what, what, how many people have you guys actually walked out of the hospital with I, this? I think we've put, I think our numbers right now are eight right now if we stick to the strictest criteria. That's Joe Tona. And among the, uh, the people who are doing uh, really uh, the best, the, the tightest inclusion criteria, survival's, you know, above 70%. Um, if you look at, at kind of uh, all the people we've done, it's, it's more in the thirties. Wow. All right. Well, that's, that's amazing. Now your process, tell me about that. You guys have, you actually planned this out. Unlike the rest of us who just ad hoc started putting cannulas in people, you guys planned out how you were going to do this. Tell me about that. Yeah. So this is, this is Scott. Um, this was something I initiated discussions with our CT surgeons here a few years ago, initially Craig Salzman, one of our CT surgeons, I approached him in a meeting to um, see what he thought about putting patients on ECMO in the ED who had failed pre-hospital resuscitation attempts. And I was a little nervous because um, I figured, you know, this is not his area, this is not his area of interest, this is not why he went into CT surgery, but he was actually very supportive of the program and uh, eventually tasked Stephen McKellar with overseeing the program and developing it. And Stephen's been great. He's obviously got um, much more clinical responsibilities than just coming down to the emergency department and helping us put patients on ECMO, but has been totally supportive of the program and its development. So uh, we kind of had a handshake agreement that we would develop it. And then when Joe came in, he had some experience with doing VV ECMO in his intensive care fellowship. And so he was able to really push the ball forward past the end zone and help us develop the inpatient protocols, the ICU protocols that were critical for um, sort of start to end ED ECMO care. Um, so that's how we got started, and uh, it's gone well. I think it was a bandwidth thing when I got here. Stephen McKellar, CT surgeon. I got uh, gifted a lot of the acute circulatory support, whether that's cath lab or ICU or wherever. So, and with Joe coming, it really helped out. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to know the plan for landing, not just for takeoff. And so we uh, started off with a lot of who we thought were the main stakeholders here. On the clinical side, that was clearly the emergency department physicians and lead nurses. We had the uh, CT surgery uh, cath lab, as we'll probably end up talking about in a bit. The patients we're really interested in are really the coronary ischemia patients, kind of a bridge to PCI, really. And uh, so clearly the cath lab needed to have buy-in. And then our ICU, cardiovascular ICU, needed nursing buy-in and support there. And that, of course, led to hospital administration support. Uh, so once we had things broadly uh, sketched out, that's when Joe really 
stepped in and, and led the way on protocols to make sure everyone in every organization or group in the stakeholders were well represented and we weren't doing stuff that was against their, you know, what, what they wanted and really to interrupt their flow to a minimum. Okay, so tell me about these protocols. Exactly what are you doing? So it starts with pre-hospital selection criteria. Youngquist from the ED. And we modeled our selection criteria on um, the the Alfred Hospital's selection criteria. We felt like those were the were very reasonable, and um, we looked at our own uh, population of non-survivors from cardiac arrest, and we're interested in looking at who ended up in the ME's office, the medical examiner's office, with acute coronary ischemia. And it was pretty clear that if you had an initial shockable rhythm, especially if you were witnessed, um, and if as your age increases, the likelihood that an acute coronary event is the cause of your arrest is very high, somewhere around 80 to 90% of those patients. So there's a clear sort of uh, treatment pathway to reverse the precipitating cause of arrest. And so we adopted criteria, um, age criteria, age 18 up to age 60. We wanted somebody with the heart that's too young to die, people that weren't surviving ALS resuscitation, um, but who could go back to a normal, healthy, productive life at work and with their families. Um, we included that the arrest should be witnessed um, and that bystander CPR be, be performed. It's a little more stringent than just saying CPR within 10 minutes, which I think was the original Alfred criteria. Um, and then no return of spontaneous circulation within 20 minutes. Figuring out the, uh, the time at which we should switch from uh, standard measures to ECLS was the biggest thing I wrestled with because there is data that if you continue resuscitation out to 40 minutes, you'll get a few survivors back, but it's sort of an exponential loss function um, as you go out in time. And that, none of this has been randomized. It's all observational. But at some point, you got to say, uh, we need to get this person on pump, um, and we pick 20 minutes, not arbitrarily, but based on the Alfred criteria and, and some other literature suggesting that survival really dropped off after 20 minutes of attempts. So those were the pre-hospital criteria. We had to go out and train all the paramedics, get the word out, um, so that they would think as they're resuscitating that they've got a clock um, going up to 20 minutes with these particular patients. And at that point, they should switch over to notifying us and moving the patient to the hospital with as minimal interruptions in CPR quality as possible. And in the meantime, we purchased um, CPR devices. We purchased the Lucas device in order to make that transition as seamless as possible. So we purchased some for the emergency department and purchased some for the pre-hospital setting in order to avoid interruptions in CPR that are attendant to moving the patient down three flights of stairs and out to the ambulance and, and moving them uh, from the pre-hospital scene to the emergency department. So it took a lot of coordinated effort on the, the pre-hospital side. And we also had to... Um, we have a lot of EMS agencies, so it was a lot of education. We did uh, some CMEs and some hands-on training and put out a checklist for EMS crews to use for who met ECMO criteria. Um, even with that, we've had some patients that met eligibility who were um, missed opportunities. And so I've given feedback to the crews. This person could have met ECMO criteria, and uh, we should have transitioned them to uh, ECMO care after 20 minutes. And, and other cases where they've... Um, brought in patients that they thought met criteria but really didn't. So you're going to have some over and under triage of these cases inevitably using a pre-hospital protocol. But overall, it's gone pretty well. I mean, most of these patients have been pretty reasonable ECMO candidates. They've either been uh, young and healthy or they've met our inclusion criteria for a shockable initial rhythm and a witnessed arrest. 
Yeah, so Scott Youngquist, I mean, this guy is one of the smartest guys I know and also very data-driven. Um, Scott, there's no one that I'd rather be making this decision, which is a really tough one. I mean, this is all over the world people are making this decision. When do you transport? Vienna's doing their trial right now to see you know if people actually survive more we just had the korea paper that came out that said ah, maybe you know ecmo wasn't as as great as we thought making that decision at 20 minutes so the the asymptotic or the the drop off sur- of survival you felt that that was the point that we should start transporting these people yes that's um I, that's not based on great science i have to admit that but uh, it's based on Logistics and the fact that um, we know that time on time to being placed on pump is also an indicator of survival. So if you decide to resuscitate for 60 minutes and then move the patient to the hospital, it's possible we get a return of spontaneous heartbeat, but no neurologic survival. So there's some sort of time window in there. Nobody knows exactly what it is, um, but 20 minutes seemed reasonable based on the literature. I would agree with that. Now, another thing I want to just get into here, and this is where the the like you know ivory tower academic center meets the community center, and and things really start to mesh. So for you guys, you own EMS, which is a huge advantage. Um, but the flip side of this is that you also have a department where you have residents, and and honestly, it's becoming more and more problematic as we get into this about training enough people that are competent in doing this. How has that worked for you guys? So, um, Tona, surgeon. That's kind of what happens then in the ED. And, and this is what our goal was, was to, once we identified who we were going to put on ECMO and who we were not, we wanted to have a very comprehensive and rapid implementation of that process in the ED. And so in order to get in order for that to happen, we had a lot of the stakeholders who were the interventional cardiologist, the CT surgeon, and the ECMO RN, who is one of the, the nurses in, the, in our cardiovascular ICU. We wanted uh, all of them to, to come down and be present for the cannulation and also say that, yes, we're going to actually put this patient on so that there were a lot of stopgap measures, so we weren't just throwing somebody on uh, without really thinking, do we have every single piece of the puzzle uh, in place? Um, when they would arrive to the ED, uh, we figured that probably the, um, the, the best person who could most rapidly start to get uh, femoral access is to have the emergency physicians there who are uh, prepped and draped and ready uh, when the patient came in. So um, when we got a call for ECMO, then we will have either residents or attendings, whoever is available, um, gowned and gloved and ready to uh, access the bilateral femoral vessels um, and then get in sheaths in those vessels as rapidly as possible and then actually start to put in um, what, are, what are called pick wires, which are these long wires that go all the way up to the heart. Um, uh, along with then the use of uh, TEE, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. So we have um, some physicians who are emergency physicians who are doing intra-arrest TEE. Um, and the combination of those wires and TEE helps us be very confident that we're in the correct vessels because um, we'll visualize those wires up at the level of the heart. And then once that, that process can happen without anybody else being on board, but then once the ECMO circuit comes down with the ECMO nurse and that's primed and ready and then the CT surgeon shows up and then the interventional cardiologist shows up uh, and all say that yeah let's review the inclusion and exclusion criteria 
Let's decide if this patient is right. And then if they are, it's a very easy process at that point to upsize the sheaths uh, to ECMO cannulas um, and to actually put them on pump. Um, the hardest part is actually getting the initial vascular access. We've, we've Personally, we've, we've toyed back and forth with, should we be using ultrasound for this? Should we not? You know, uh, should you poke a whole bunch of times and, and get access faster or, or risk the hematomas and the injury to the vessels? Or should we you know, try and do a one-poke approach? Um, and we've played back and forth with that, and we're still trying to work out what the best way to get uh, intra-arrest vascular access is. Or a cut down. How about a cut down? You guys toyed with that at all? Well, if the patients were skinnier, I'd say, let's do it. Oh, boy. Fat jokes. Back off, McKellar. But, uh, in our experience, that's not been the case. I like what no. Joe, Joe said with training, putting in arterial lines and femoral venous lines is not a huge... It's exactly within the scope of the people who are there. And then within you know 10 or 15 minutes, the people who have lots and years and years of experience putting in ECMO cannulas are there, then it's all within. So we've kind of... I won't say compartmentalized, but we haven't asked people to go too far beyond the scope of what they do every single day. Clearly, putting lines in patients who don't have a pulse and are on CPR is a very different experience, but overall, everyone's really within their scope of practice as a team collaborative. So I think that's why we planned it the way we did. Youngquist, ER doctor. Zach, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge to an ED ECMO program is the fact that you have people working variable amounts of shifts, different times of day. You have a lot of players covering the emergency department, whether it's a community or an academic center. We have fellows coming in who are working as attendings basically in the emergency department. So one of the things that we did, um, as as Dr. McKellar mentioned, we, we sort of uh, have this side-by-side um, -side collaborative where they come in and pick up the next part of the care, which is to do the rest of the cannulation, the upsizing, putting the patient on pump. We haven't trained each emergency physician to do that component. Their job is very simple. It's just to get vascular access. And so one of the things we've done is to protocolize that for every cardiac arrest, regardless of whether they go on ECMO or not. So if you come to the emergency department, you don't meet our ECMO criteria, but you're in arrest, we will put in a femoral artery line and a femoral venous line, and we'll measure arterial pressures and try to resuscitate you to um, the highest possible arterial pressure. So um, that's another way that we try to get people comfortable with the concept, um, but it is the biggest challenge we face is um, the fact that we've got so many different providers, so much turnover with new fellows coming in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the art line, I, just last night I had a case where a guy, put, I put in an art line and I honestly think it saved his life. I think it allowed us to just manage his resuscitation so much better um, because you can tell not only the quality of CPR, but you can tell, you know, about their pressures in real time rather than this intermittent blood pressure cuff. Okay, so you guys have a, a staged approach. Sounds like you're doing all the right things. You're You're training the people that need to be trained. You're not asking people to do things outside of their scope and then you know as experience goes on you know people may may end up doing you may end up ending up having a few little tricks that you might end up having as far as getting these cannulas in all right so let's talk about your inclusion and exclusion criteria you guys are pretty strict with that you're going just for acs patients is that right currently that's what we're targeting is the acs patient so we can we send them straight from the emergency department to the cath lab we don't we're not getting CT scans and other studies trying to figure out what was the cause of the rest. These are presumptive acute coronary syndromes that we're sending straight to the cath lab from the ED once they're on pump. And that's why we really wanted good buy-in for the cath lab. Their metrics 
in cath lab mortality, et cetera, it's a big deal. And we need, had good leadership who said this is a good, this is a worthy endeavor. Let's look into it. Let's explore it. And weren't too overly concerned about those metrics initially. So good support there. Like when Joe said, cannulated, they go straight to the cath lab. So it's really as if a STEMI, they're all waiting to go. We go right up to the cath lab, do the diagnostics and or therapeutics, and then hopefully within an hour are in the ICU for cooling and warming or whatever we need to do for these patients. So it's it, in fact, the ED part of it is probably the shortest phase of it all. Uh, we tend to spend more time in the cath lab and certainly more time in the ICU, and that's why we really wanted that broad base of support from nursing and cath lab and hospital administration, uh, not just doing something that now we look at each other and say, now where do we go? Yeah. So. so reflex, if you put somebody on ECMO, they're going to the cath lab. Yes, yes. That's great. That's great. We've been pushing for that at our hospital as well. Now, you guys, I mean, it's Utah and hypothermia, and and there's lots of literature showing benefits with ECMO with this. You guys are you're not thinking about that or, or what? Tona, surgeon, and intensive care fellowshiped. No, so we're, uh, um, once they then get put on pump, the benefit of being on ECMO is you can have a heater cooler hooked right into the oxygenator, so you can control them very rapidly. And what we've done is, is um, collaborated with our neurocritical care colleagues, and we're doing targeted temperature management you know, for the first 24 hours, um, keeping them at 36 degrees, which it honestly has not been a problem. Most of these patients, um, we don't normally run a heater cooler uh, to warm the blood through the ECMO circuit because our cannulas are pretty, uh, the tubing's pretty short. Um, so the patients are generally a little bit hypothermic um, or, or just below 30, 35, 5, 36, just with the circuit itself um, but then we can we can control their temperature if, if we need to um, and then during that time we also do uh, neuromonitoring um, you know seizure monitoring EEG and uh, CT head uh, to make sure that they're not seizing and to and then to be able to help prognosticate which we try and do uh, as rapidly as is acceptable and safe so I, I know if, I'm just talking about other indications. So I know obviously you guys are keeping it tight, making the process, you know, as we get the best survivorship as possible. But I'm imagining as far as exposure, like not therapeutic hypothermia, actual exposure to cold, they come in, you know, as as an icicle and rewarming them with ECMO. Has that been, I mean, I don't even know how many patients you guys get like that a year, but um, has that been a consideration as far as broadening your inclusion criteria to not only these ACS patients, but also to, you know, hypothermia as well as like a PE? Yeah, we've we've talked about uh, the future of ED ECMO, which probably includes some other indications. We currently don't activate for those patients, but we do have offline consultations for them. So if somebody is a uh, beta blocker overdose or something like that, we could certainly call Dr. McKellar or Dr. Selzman, whoever's on call for CT surgery, and request a consultation, see if they would be willing to put the patient on ECMO. So it's on a case-by-case basis in those other areas. We haven't protocolized that for, like, massive PE, but it's something we, we talk about as the program develops. And I certainly get called to other parts of the hospital for exact that indication. And I think a main thing, a point for either programs thinking of starting this is this really, we think, should grow out of an existing ECMO program. So, you know, I direct the ECMO services, and ED ECMO is a big part of it, but it's not all of it. So certainly we're doing this in, ironically, many units in the hospital uh, for exactly what you're talking about, PEs, not a hypothermia. And, Scott, I don't know the data for how many avalanche patients we get a year, but uh, those are things we already do, but 
I think for this, we really have focused the program on acute coronary syndrome. Tona? And a lot of that is to show the, the validity of the application. I, I think we're still at the point, we'll talk about this later, is, is proving that this is actually a superior therapy in the right patient to standard cardiac arrest therapy. Uh, you know, and with time, as we mature as a specialty and, and this application matures, we'll understand you know, who are the other people, because there's a lot of people who can benefit from ECMO. It's just it wasn't what we initially tried to succeed at. All right, awesome. Let's, let's talk TEE. I don't have TEE. I understand a bit about it, but can you take me through how are you using this modality to help you? I can talk about that. This is Scott again. Um, we have used TEE um, sort of like we have arterial access for all cardiac arrest patients. We're putting this in in all cardiac arrest victims, including ED ECMO cases. And the nice thing about TEE from the resuscitation standpoint is you can pretty much get rid of the pulse check. In most cases, if, if you've got an arterial line, you've got some idea of the pressures being generated natively when you stop CPR. But with the ECMO, your first look is at the heart and whether it's even moving. So if you see absolutely no cardiac contractility, you know, just to resume CPR, you don't have to stop and do a pulse check. So it speeds things along in terms of diagnostics. And then there's the potential for sure to notice a cause of cardiac arrest, such as a pericardial tamponade or an aortic dissection from the TE point of view. Um, for the procedure, it's also very helpful. I'll let McKellar talk about that. Well, it's funny. I, when they raised the, hey, we could do TE, I just thought that's a knucklehead idea if I've ever heard one. But frankly, it's become very, very helpful. We use it all the time in the OR, whether peripherally cannulating or for anything else. So it's something I do every day, but I didn't think it was going to be very helpful. But putting people in, putting uh, sheets and everything in patients who without a pulse, is this artery, is it vein, is it this, is it that, it really teases it out. We know we're exactly where we are. We know we're put the cannula right at the SVC RA junction. Uh, we know we're flowing well. And it also starts to give me a little bit more information as what I'm going to have to do down the road to decompress the LV. There's some pretty good data, particularly from the Impella data. Uh, that if you don't decompress the LV, then you're going to have a really hard time recovering that heart. So aortic insufficiency is a bad problem with peripheral ECMO, things like that, things that we're going to do down the road, et cetera, and you know, if, how we're going to decompress if needed. So I found it very helpful. I've changed my attitude from being against it to very in favor of it, and I think it's a very good way to start off. I think particularly as we start to say more and more providers other than CT surgery are going to be putting these in, I think you really want to know where your wires are to make sure you're in the right location. It sounds so silly. How could you possibly put uh, the cannulas in the wrong vessels? But I'm telling you, we just had another case where we had a, an AA circuit on board. And uh, yeah, getting those wires in, I mean, we, we would love to have the TE at, at our hospital. We're it's actually less of a money issue for us and more of just trying to figure out how we're going to clean the thing. But yeah, it sounds like this is the wave of the future. And I know certainly Rob Arnfeld and all that's been going on up there, he's he's a huge advocate of this. And, and Mike and Matt with the Ultrasound Podcast as well. So this is this is awesome. Now, Scott, I wanted to just throw something out there. You guys are in a very unique situation, and uh, there's not very many places like this. I, I went and spoke at New Mexico, and they're a little bit like you guys, but you own EMS, and so you can control the patients that come in. Paris is the only other place in the world, or at least currently, that's doing pre-hospital ECMO. Have you guys 
toyed or even considered even thinking about trying to get a system where you could go out there to the field and start putting cannulas in out there? Well, I, I think about it, but I there are barriers in the United States to that, significant barriers. Um, one of the major barriers is cost. You really can't recuperate the cost of pre-hospital ECMO. So you do it just outside the hospital doors, and you have to eat the cost of the uh, circuit whatever other supplies and equipment you use, there's no way that the fire department can bear these costs. I mean, they're, they're a very um, budget-tight organization as it is. I mean, um, the city council basically approaches them every year and says, tell us how you can cut 5% out of your budget. And then after this kabuki dance, they give them like a 1% raise or something like that. So they have razor-thin um, budgets as it is. There's no way they could incorporate this level of technology currently. But I think as circuits become cheaper, as units become cheaper, this is um, something to continually revisit. Is is there the possibility to have um, you know a nurse and paramedic going out to the scene or a physician going out to the scene and doing an ECMO in the United States? Um, definitely the possibility, but it's it's there's a big um, barrier in terms of who's going to pay for this level of care out in the field. Do you guys have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, you mentioned like we own EMS. We've tried to do this in a very collegial way in the sense that we haven't told EMS, you're now going to, we're offering a therapy that nobody else is, send your patients to us. Um, because we haven't proven that it works yet. We, we think it does. We have data to suggest it does. But we're not at the level where we can really reroute EMS systems because um, that wouldn't be fair to the other hospitals and the other people involved. Um, and so we're taking kind of what comes to us, and we're trying to provide the best care in that group. But um, it may get to, you know, uh, other things at some point, but we're not, we're not there yet. Yeah, that's one, right. of, one of the areas we have to be careful of is the political climate. It's very, Salt Lake City is a very competitive market, healthcare market. We have several major players and uh, many fine hospitals that provide excellent care. We were kind of in a unique position to um, take care of patients in this collaborative fashion in a way that's maybe difficult for other hospitals, especially community hospitals, to, to do this kind of care. Uh, but it is, as the EMS medical director, I'm able to write the protocols and say, um, you know, these are the patients that meet our criteria. If you're within 10 minutes of the university, bring them here. We're not um, stealing patients from other hospitals because these are patients who, by and large, are going to the medical examiner's office. If um, Most of our cases of uh, VF that survive have a return of spontaneous circulation within 20 minutes. It is, it's rare for us to get a survivor back that actually makes it out of the hospital after 20 minutes. It does happen, but their chances are pretty limited. So um, part of this was also meeting with um, the other players in the hospital. We have um, a collaborative group of people, representatives from the other hospitals, and saying, look, we're going to be doing this, and we're going to try to get some uh, people to survive who are not surviving. And so far, people have been, by and large, very supportive of the program. Um, okay, so last thing here. Joe, uh, erect. Great name, awesome. What? Tell me about this. What's going on with Erect? So, uh, Erect uh, is the Extracorporeal Resuscitation Consortium. Uh, the, the name was brought up actually by uh, by Joe by Joe Belezzo. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and the goal is that um, after we started this program, and it, you guys have your program, and there's a couple other. Um, programs out there across the country that we knew about where there were emergency physicians highly involved in in ECMO. And we realized, you know, all of us are getting a, you know, a patient here, a patient there, but we're not doing, you know, one a week. 
And so in order to, to really understand the benefit in that group, you really have to pool data. And so we wanted to get together with the other programs that were doing this and just talk about, hey, what'd you learn? You know, what's the best way to do CPR? What's the best way to cannulate? Who do you have involved? Um, how are your outcomes? So that we could just all do it a little bit better. Um, and that became a collaborative. Um, we, you know, would have, uh, you know, uh, meetings and talk about kind of best practice. And it quickly became clear that, well, we shouldn't just talk about best practice. We should actually collect data uh, and try and analyze objectively what we're doing. Um, and so that kind of grew the erect, the, um, the Extracorporeal Resuscitation Consortium. So we, we're a group of what is currently eight institutions across the country, mostly academic centers, but not entirely. Uh, who are doing ED ECMO, who have active ED ECMO programs. And there are plenty of other institutions across the country. We actually, as a consortium, just finished uh, surveying them. Um, so there's a lot of people doing ED ECMO, but these are centers that have self-selected that they want to participate in active data collection and best practice sharing. And we encourage other people who are interested, if they're doing ED ECMO and want to participate, to, um, to let us know. We have a website out there. The, uh, it's erectcollaborative.org, or um, you can get it at uh, bit.ly, uh, bit.ly forward slash uh, erect, all in caps. Yeah. Um, and uh, we encourage people to peruse the website and see who we are and contact us. And um, if they want to come join, we can, uh, we can do that because the only way this field is going to move forward in a, in a healthy way is if we start um, doing data collection and, and, and sharing and collaborating on this. From ED ECMO, this has been fantastic. We have the University of Utah doing ED ECMO with a combined approach, integrating all their specialties. They've got EMS, they've got the ER physician, they got CT surgeon, they got cardiology, they got intensivist, all buying into a program that allows for patients not only in out of hospital cardiac arrest, but in in hospital cardiac arrest to hopefully get some benefit from the use of eCPR. I've got Scott Youngquist, I've got Joe Tona talking about the Erect Collaborative, and Stephen McKellar, CT surgeon, making this all happen at the University of Utah. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. Thanks for having us. From ED ECMO, signing off.